Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be with you and blessings on your Lent. Um, If you haven't grabbed one, we're doing a Lenten daily devotional together as a church, and these are available on the welcome table. Um, And this Lent, for our sermon series, we're traveling in the wilderness. Um, We're calling this sermon series Christ in the Wilderness. We're traveling with the Israelites, um, and, and we believe that if you look carefully enough, that we can find Christ there in the wilderness with the Israelites too. Now, the backstory for the passage we're going to look at today is that the Israelites have been delivered from slavery in Egypt through a miraculous parting of the Red Sea. And they are headed to the promised land, but right now they're in that in-between stage, an in-between stage that ends up lasting for 40 years. Um, and as can happen in the wilderness, they... Um, they find that food and drink become urgent matters, um, as we will see in our story today. So let's just jump right into Exodus 16. And as we do, I want to invite us to pay attention uh, to what God is revealing to us about who he is, what he's like, and what he's up to in the lives of the Israelites here. So let's read starting in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam, And came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community, as Liesel read earlier, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Wow. So I want us to do a little bit of observing together. And I just want to ask you, what do you notice about the Israelites' attitude here? How would you describe their attitude in your own words? Are there any brave souls out there? Burned out, did you say? Pretty dumb. Okay, pretty dumb. (laughs) Any... I'm sorry? Whiny. Whiny. I see. Mistrustful. Mistrustful of who? God? Yeah? Moses too? And Aaron? Any other words? Frustrated and hungry. Isn't there a word for that? Is hangry? <laughs> Selective memory. They're not remembering God's faithfulness. It just happened like two weeks ago, right? They were just, you know... They saw the waves, you know, the part before them. And what else? Anything else? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Um, So if you were Moses, how would you feel? How do you think you'd feel? Any other words? Unappreciated. That, that, That covers a lot right there. Unappreciated. Anything else? discouraged, resentful, exhausted. I love those. Yeah. And if that's how Moses felt, I wonder how God must have felt. 
I mean, after all, he's the one who actually opened the Red Sea. He's the one who turned the bitter waters sweet at Mara, which we read about last week. And you can catch that story from Adam's a sermon on the podcast. Um, let's keep reading and see how God responds to the Israelites in their grumbling. Verse 4 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. What? I will rain down bread from heaven for you. How would you describe, last question I'll ask you to you know, answer aloud. How would you describe God's response to the grumbling, disrespectful, <laughs> unappreciative Israelites? Any words to describe God's response? What? Generous. Forgiving merciful, miraculous, unexpected, kind of surprising. Wow, yeah. So let's take a look at the details now. What will this bread from heaven look like, and how will this happen? Well, the Lord said to Moses in verse uh, 11, 4, 11, and 12, the Lord said to Moses, tell them, in the morning you will be filled with bread. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. The people are to go out and gather enough for that day. So God is going to provide for them in the wilderness, and he's going to do so miraculously. But notice something very interesting here. God does not cause the bread to show up fresh baked on the table, does he? Right? God's provision for the Israelites is a participatory provision. He has a role for the Israelites to play in it. They actually have work to do. And I just want to pause here for a moment and say this. Work is one of the privileged ways that we participate in God's provision for us. Um, Timothy Keller says this in his book, um, Every Good Endeavor. He says, work is a major instrument of God's providence. It is how he sustains the human world. But in order for our work to be a blessing and not a curse, it has to be in balance, doesn't it? It has to be in right balance. And it seems to me that one of the things that God uh, is doing here among the Israelites is he's helping them to establish that balance, um, which is another way of saying that he's helping them to develop a work ethic, right? Now, in Egypt, the Israelites didn't have much of a chance to develop a work ethic because their work was not in the context of freedom, right? They were enslaved. But now they have autonomy in their labor. And so they need an ethic. They need a work ethic. They need structure, and, 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 and perhaps they need to structure their lab labor. Um, they need uh, guidance. They need some guardrails. Anyone else here need that? I need that. I know I need that, whether it's our, our paid work or our unpaid work that we're talking about. Well, it turns out that God is interested in our relationship with our work. And he's providing a template for the Israelites. And part of that template is a rhythm for their labor, right? When does he ask the Israelites to go out and collect the manna, the bread? Morning, right? There's a specific time of day. Later, we read that he also, God also provides quail for them. Um, and, and the quail appears at twilight. And so, again, it, the quail did not show up as boiled meat in the pot. 
Um, it probably showed up as birds migrating across the area uh, who became exhausted and they came down to rest or which is exhausted. And, and, and quail that are exhausted from migrating are known to be very easy prey. Uh, so morning and evening, God was giving the Israelites a role and a responsibility in his provision for them. God was teaching the Israelites how to order their labors. I believe this is something God wants to do in our lives as well. He wants us to learn how to order our labors well and to abide by healthy rhythms in our work. Not to function as slaves to our work on the one hand and not to function as grown-up babies on the other hand, right, who have no hand at all in their work. Um, So the people go out and they collect the bread from heaven in the morning. And here's how they describe it. They describe it as as like coriander seed. And they describe its taste as tasting like wafers and honey. Wafers and honey. God could have provided them hardtack. Uh, They would have survived. But he chose to provide them something that tasted, had the taste of honey. How lovely. Now, they've never seen anything like this before, this thing that kind of looks like coriander seed. And so they call it manna. Does anyone know what manna actually translates as? What is it? What is it? What is that stuff? And it's such a colloquial term that it's actually uh, more like whatchamacallit. (laughs) Which I just think is like, God just must be smiling. You know, like, you know, like... Not like, oh, God provides. They didn't call it God provides. They called it whatchamacallit. <laughs> Meanwhile, God was up to some other things in all of this uh, manna and quail that he was providing. It wasn't just filling their stomachs. So let's read um, verses 6 and 7. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. What is God up to? Let's take a look at the verbs. Notice the verbs. In the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. God is revealing himself to the Israelites. He doesn't just want them to have full stomachs. He wants them to bear witness to his power, and he wants them to taste his glory. And not just one time either, right? Maybe the parting of the sea was kind of a one-time, you know, event. But he's feeding them this manna every morning, miraculously, providing quail, you know, in the evening. And so um, it, it's ongoing. And God was, I think what he was really doing was building a history of his faithfulness in the lives of the Israelites. And, and that's something that he wants to do in our lives as well. When we have a history of God's faithfulness in our lives, we can draw from it for comfort when life gets hard. And we can return to it to be reminded of who God is when he feels distant and we become disillusioned and we wonder what he's really like after all. Did we ever really understand uh, that he is good? Well, we can let our past speak to our present. And we can draw from that history of, our, of God's faithfulness in our lives and to share it discerningly with other people, to edify them when the opportunity arises. Now, in Christian culture, we have this term that we sometimes use called testimony. You've heard people talking about sharing their testimony or uh, maybe you're, you're asked to share your testimony. 
Um, and that simply means giving voice to what we have observed, the evidence of God in our lives. Now, I wonder if there's another way that we can be thinking about testimony. And I wonder if we can think about an earlier part of our lives testifying to our present, to us in our present. Does that make sense? Can we let God's provision for us in the past encourage us in the wilderness of our present? God is building a history of his faithfulness in the lives of the Israelites, and he's doing that in our lives as well. Now, there's also one more thing that I want us to talk about that God is up to with the Israelites here. It's one word, and it starts with a T. See if you can find it. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. What is God up to? He's testing them. Right? Here's how he's testing them. He's asking them not to collect more than they need, but just enough for that day, for each person in the household, one omer per person in the household. They're being asked to trust that there will be enough, uh, that there will be more waiting for them the next morning. But what he's really asking them to trust him about is this, that his word is true, that his word will stand. So let's see how they do on this test. Moses says to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. Yuck. So how did the Israelites do on this test? Pass or fail? Okay, yeah. Some of them passed, but a bunch of them failed, clearly. Um, and, uh, well, let's see, maybe they'll do better on the next test. What do you think? So um, here's what God says to them through Moses uh, about the sixth day and the seventh day of the week. He says, on the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So just to clarify, they were supposed to gather just enough for every day and not more, except on the sixth day when they were supposed to, they were, they were being invited to gather twice as much, right? And so each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And he said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggots in it. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. So what about this test, pass or fail? Yeah, some of them passed. A bunch of them failed. They failed royally. Uh, at least, let's see. So they ignored God's word, right? They, they, they went out on the seventh day to harvest the manna. They found none. Their efforts were fruitless, and their time was wasted. It is interesting to me that it was so hard for some of the Israelites to take a day off. So hard. God gave it to them as a gift. What a beautiful gift. 
But it was very difficult for them to receive this gift. They just, their inclination was to just keep working. Anyone else here uh, find it hard to rest? Am I the only one? There are many reasons we chronically resist rest. A lot of them are cultural. Uh, But what if one of the underlying reasons that we resist rest is this? Rest requires trust. Rest requires trust. The Israelites had to trust that God would keep fresh the manna that they collected on the sixth day uh, and that it would be there for them. There would be enough on the seventh day. They had to trust that he actually meant what he said, that his word would hold true. And they had to trust that his word reflected a heart that was bent toward their good, that God actually had their best interest in mind, right? And we also, we also have to trust. We have to trust that there will be enough, right? That what we earn or do or make in our work week is going to be enough. And we don't have to just bulldoze through. We have to trust that the world isn't going to collapse around us when we pull away. It's hard to pull away. It takes a certain muscle, I think. It's, it takes practice. But we have to learn to trust to do that. And, and despite our notions to the contrary, um, it turns out that we are not actually indispensable. And that is humbling, isn't it? We have to trust that our sense of purpose in God our sense of belonging in God is going to be enough to make up for the sense of purpose and belonging that we would otherwise be deriving from our work, right? Rest is a part of ordering the rhythms of our, our, our labors well, right? And it's God's wisdom for us. So if we're going to receive God's gift of Sabbath rest, we will need to exercise trust in the maker of Sabbath, So I want us to get something straight here when it comes to testing, the big T word. It's a little bit of a scary word, isn't it? When I hear the word test, I get nervous. (laughs) I associate it with grades. I do not like grades. I specifically went to a college, by the way, that did not have grades because I just couldn't handle them. And I still cared too much about grades. Um, When I think about God testing me, it gets even worse because it's no longer just about grades, right? It, it, it can come to be about things like judgment, punishment. Here's where I want us to be very clear about something. When God tests the Israelites, he's not actually looking for an excuse to punish them. Right? He's not seeking out grounds on which to leave them or abandon them. It, it's not like he's trying to decide whether he's going to remain faithful right? Whether they're going to earn that. Um, God loves the Israelites and he is already covenanted with them and he is fully committed to them. He's not going anywhere. And on top of that, God cannot be disappointed by the Israelites. That might sound surprising, but he cannot be disappointed by them because disappointment happens when an expectation is not met. And God does not have an expectation of the Israelites' perfection, right? God is not surprised by their failure. In fact, he's fully prepared for their failure, and he even has a plan for their failure. And I believe he has a plan for our failure as well. And that plan is to use it for our good. 
He's a master of using our failure for our good. So here's the plan in case you're interested in what God's plan for failure is in, in this case, and the, the Israelites perhaps in general. When the Israelites fail to obey God's instruction, there's a consequence. And it's a consequence that helps them realize that God actually knew what he was talking about, right? That consequence is not a punishment per se. It is the natural outcome of their actions. So there's worms in the manna. Is that God's punishment for them disobeying? It could be. But I suspect this was probably the natural thing that happened in the desert when you tried to store this particular food source without modern refrigeration. And when it came to the seventh day, why weren't there worms in the manna? Well, because God did what he said he would do. He intervened and he extended the shelf life of the manna. Let me share a, a story with you. When I was little, I, quite little, I don't know how old, but quite little, I remember that I was strictly prohibited from opening the basement door. And the basement was uh, just off of the kitchen, so, you know, right there in the center of the house, uh, very visible. Um, and I remember feeling really confident that I could go down the basement stairs just fine on my own. Well, one day, with my parents right there in the kitchen talking to each other, I approached the basement door. Now, not only was I going to go down the basement stairs on my own, but I was going to show my parents that I was perfectly capable of going down the basement stairs on my own. Well, I didn't expect that when I opened the basement door, there would be no light on, and it was dark. I couldn't see the stairs. And I heard my parents kind of like, I don't know what they said, but stop or whatever it was, as I put my foot out, and there's nothing underneath it, and I went head over heels down the basement stairs, capital F, fail, right? My falling down those stairs was no punishment for disobeying uh, the rule. It was a natural consequence by which I learned that my parents' rule about the basement door was actually based on wisdom. It was based on a wisdom that was much higher than mine, and their rule about the basement door was not designed to make life boring and restrictive for me. It was designed to keep me safe. It really did have my very best interest in mind. When God tests us, the test is not to see whether we will pass or fail. When God tests us, he's actually teaching us. He's training us. He's training us to trust him. He's training us to trust his word. He's training us to trust that what he says is true. And he's not just training us to trust that what he says is true, but that what he says is wise, it's good, and it actually has our very best interest in mind. So looking back on the Israelites' time in the wilderness and their experience of God providing for them through manna, uh, the book of Deuteronomy uh, summarizes in a, in, in, a, in a few sentences I'd like for us to read uh, what God was up to. So let's read Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you 
that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's humbling them. He's testing them. But ultimately, he is teaching them. He's teaching them something about who he is and about trusting his word. So God was providing bread for the Israelites in the wilderness, but he's teaching them about another kind of bread, the bread of his word. Right? With manna, God filled their stomachs, but with the living word of God, the God who speaks, he sustained their lives. Fast forward. Fast forward a thousand plus years. There was an Israelite who wandered the wilderness for 40 days. And he knew what it was like for the Israelites before him to hunger in the wilderness because his wilderness experience was also marked by hunger. He fasted. Scripture says that this Israelite fasted for 40 days and nights. And like the Israelites before him, he too was tested. Satan came to him in his hunger and said, turn these stones into bread. And he could have. Because he wasn't just an ordinary Israelite. He was a prophet. Indeed, he was the awaited Messiah. But he did not give in to Satan's temptation. He did not turn the stones into bread to relieve his hunger. Instead, he trusted in his heavenly Father and his word to sustain him. And he rebuked Satan with that very word, with these very words that we just read from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, He said to Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Israelites failed their wilderness test. But this very special Israelite passed his wilderness test. After these 40 days in the wilderness, this very special Israelite embarked on a journey, a journey throughout the towns and cities of Israel to announce the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. He healed people. He forgave them of their sins. He taught people what it is like, what it looks like to love well, to live in peace with people and with God. And at one point he gave a sermon. There were 5,000 people present at this sermon. Must have been a very long sermon because they became very hungry and there wasn't enough food. But Jesus fed them anyways. He took five loaves of bread and two fish offered by a young boy and he gave thanks and he broke the bread and he distributed it to the crowd, feeding them in full with 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Well, after this miracle, as you can imagine, many people wanted to make this very special man king, king of Israel. But that, of course, did not please the Roman government one bit, nor did it please the Jewish religious leaders who felt threatened by him. And so it was not long after that there was a death warrant out. And on the night he was arrested, the night before he was killed, before his arrest, he sat down with a very, for a very special Passover dinner with his 12 best friends and closest followers. And at that meal, he took a piece of bread. And he gave thanks to God for it and broke it. And as he broke it, he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Friends, God fed the people of Israel manna in the wilderness, but he has given us something much greater, Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In Jesus, we have been given eternal life, a purpose, a future, forgiveness from all our sin, healing from all our shame, the power to love, a new way to live, and strength for that new way to live. Our job is simply to come, to come and to keep coming, to come back. And so in the words of the prophet Isaiah, hear this morning's invitation. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Let's pray. Oh God, Father in heaven, provider for the Israelites in the wilderness, sustainer of Jesus in the wilderness, sustainer of us in our own wilderness. We long to hear your voice. It is bread for our souls. We come hungry. We thank you, Lord, that you care not just to sustain us, not just to keep us breathing and alive, but you care to form and shape us, to be your followers, to be your image bearers, to be more like you. Lord, you use all of the hard things in our lives for good, just like you use the wilderness for good in the lives of the Israelites. And we pray for wherever we find ourselves in a hard place this morning, whatever wilderness we are wandering, perhaps feel completely lost in, wondering where you are in the midst, O oh Lord. We ask that you would provide the manna that we need, whatever that is, whatever that looks like. And we thank you that you have a history of faithfulness among your people. You have even given us a history of your faithfulness. We celebrate that. And we ask that you would build the history of your faithfulness in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church of the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.org.